New York, this is Democracy Now! Consequences, therefore, I hold, is the moment that uh, this is the moment for us to determine to do away with this abandonment, this disdain, and this forgetfulness for Latin America and the Caribbean. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador has called on the United States to stop treating Latin America with disdain. AMLO made the comments to President Biden, who's visiting Mexico for the North American Leaders Summit. We're also going to discuss our shared security, including our joint action to address the the plague of fentanyl, which has killed 100,000 Americans so far and how we can tackle irregular migration, which I think we're well on our way to doing. We'll talk about the summit with two guests in Mexico City, then look at the 100th anniversary of the Rosewood Massacre in Florida, when an armed white mob attacked the predominantly black town in central Florida. The mob killed at least six black residents and burned nearly all buildings to the ground. We'll speak to a professor whose grandfather survived the massacre. And we talk to former NAACP President Vangelis about his new memoir, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free, a parable of American healing. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Republicans in the House of Representatives have approved a new rules package that'll gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. The measure will force out three of the four Democrats currently serving on the office's board of directors and will severely limit the office's ability to hire new workers, including investigative staffers. Another provision in the new rules package allows a single lawmaker to force a vote on ousting the House Speaker. It was a concession made by newly minted Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to win the support of far-right members of his party. Democrats also warned McCarthy appears to have struck informal agreements with fellow Republicans. This is Massachusetts Democratic Congressmember Jim McGovern. You know, everybody's talking about transparency and openness. It would be nice if there was a little bit more transparency and openness from the other side. This is backroom politics. That's what this is about. Secret deals that no one's going to know anything about until it's too late. In their first order of business, Republicans approved legislation slashing funding to the IRS in a party-line vote, 221 to 210. Critics say the bill is designed to protect wealthy individuals and corporate tax cheats. In Brazil, at least 1,500 people have been detained since Sunday's assault on the Brazilian Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace by supporters of the former far-right President Jair Bolsonaro in the capital, Brasilia. Brazil's Justice Minister Flavio Dino spoke Monday. The former president of the republic, Jair Bolsonaro, and all of his followers, for example, frequently targeted attacks against the Supreme Court. That is why I say that words have power, especially when they are words of the president of the republic. The president exercises factual material powers, but also exercises symbolic powers, which include the power of words. What we witnessed was that this frequent discourse in social media gained legs, arms, stones, bullets, bombs. Here in the United States, a group of Democratic Congress members, including Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, are urging President Biden to expel 
Bolsonaro from the U.S. The far-right leader has been staying in Orlando, Florida, after he fled Brazil ahead of the inauguration of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva last week. Bolsonaro faces at least four criminal probes in Brazil. He was admitted to a Florida hospital Monday after complaining of intestinal pain, one day after his supporters stormed the government buildings in Brasilia. In Peru, at least 17 people were killed Monday after Peruvian security forces opened fire at anti-government protesters in the city of Juliaca. At least two teenagers were among the dead. Protesters are demanding the interim president, Dina Boluarte, resign. Some 40 people have died nationwide since mass mobilizations erupted in Peru last month following the ouster and arrest of the leftist former president, Pedro Castillo. Police in Juliaca reportedly opened fire as protesters tried to shield themselves with metal plates. I was holding my camera when a police officer asked me to kneel while pointing a gun at me. Then I heard a shot and I felt my foot blocked. Then I felt a cramp. I took four steps and I fell on the ground because I couldn't walk. Meanwhile, Peru's new government has banned former Bolivian President Evo Morales from entering Peruvian territory in response to Morales' support for Pedro Castillo. Morales has also accused Dina Boluarte's government of human rights violations against protesters. Israel's new far-right governments revoked entry permits for Palestinian Foreign Minister Riyad al-Malki and three Fatah officials in retaliation for their effort to bring the illegal occupation of Palestinian territories to the International Court of Justice. This is Palestinian Foreign Ministry advisor Ahmed Aldik. These measures will not stop us and will not stop the foreign minister and the Palestinian leadership from continuing our political and diplomatic legal efforts to protect the fair national legitimate rights of our people and to uncover the violations and the crimes of the occupation. Israel's security cabinet also moved to withhold $39 million in revenues from the Palestinian Authority and imposed a moratorium on Palestinian construction projects in the occupied West Bank. Meanwhile, Israel's national security minister, Itamar Ben-Gavir, has ordered police to remove Palestinian flags from public spaces, calling their display a, quote, form of supporting terror. Palestinian-American author Yusuf Munayir tweeted in response, quote, Israel holds an entire stateless nation under military occupation. They got enough nukes to start a regional conflagration, but they fear a piece of cloth, unquote. Over the weekend, thousands of people demonstrated in Tel Aviv against the new Israeli government and the increasing threats it poses to democracy and human rights. In California, authorities have ordered thousands of people in several counties evacuated after winter storms brought an atmospheric river of rain and snow to much of the state. Hardest hit was California's central coast, where coastal communities face flash flooding, landslides and power outages. The death toll from winter storms rose to at least 14 Monday after two people were killed by falling trees. Some 8 million people in Los Angeles County were under a flash flood warning while parts of Santa Barbara County received more than seven inches of rain over a span of just 12 hours. Forecasters predict more relentless rain will hit California over the coming week. 
The White House has confirmed reports that classified documents were discovered in a former office space used by Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. as vice president. On Monday, Biden's lawyer said a small number of the documents were discovered in a locked closet as they were closing the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. It's not clear what the documents were related to. Biden's lawyers say they immediately notified the National Archives, which took possession of the records the next day. In 2018, then-President Trump signed a bill making it a felony rather than a misdemeanor to knowingly remove classified materials with the intent to retain them at an unauthorized location. Those convicted faced up to five years in prison. Special counsel Jack Smith is currently investigating Trump for allegedly mishandling at least 325 classified documents seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago last August. Federal prosecutors have issued former President Trump's personal attorney, Rudolph Giuliani, grand jury subpoenas part of an investigation into Trump's fundraising efforts after the 2020 election. That's according to multiple news reports citing an unnamed person familiar with the matter. The Save America PAC received, well, raised over $250 million off Trump supporters on the false claim the 2020 election results were fraudulent. It's not clear how much of the money Trump's lawyers received, but one witness told the House January 6th committee Giuliani asked to be paid $20,000 a day. In Georgia, a special grand jury has wrapped up its probe of efforts by former President Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. The decision whether to seek an indictment is now in the hands of Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. Since June, the grand juries heard testimony from dozens of witnesses, including Rudy Giuliani and South Carolina Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. In January 2021, Trump told Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, quote, I just want to find 11,780 votes, the margin he would have needed to defeat Joe Biden in Georgia. Meanwhile, a federal judge in New York has delayed the unsealing of a deposition given by Trump in a lawsuit accusing him of defamation. Former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll has accused Trump of raping her in the 1990s, which the former presidents denied. The lawsuit will be heard today by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, where Trump's lawyers will argue presidents can't be personally sued for statements made while in office. In California, community advocates are demanding justice for Keenan Anderson, a 31-year-old black father and high school English teacher who was killed by Los Angeles police January 3rd. Officers were called to the scene after a car accident was reported. As police attempted to arrest Anderson, he was tased for several minutes, tackled and pushed down on the pavement, handcuffed and restrained at the ankles. Anderson was then taken to the hospital where he died of cardiac arrest. The LAPD did not acknowledge Anderson's death until three days later. Patrice Cullors, author and co-founder of Black Lives Matter, said on Instagram, Anderson was her cousin. She wrote Monday, quote, Keenan deserves to be alive right now. His child deserves to be raised by his father, unquote. LAPD officers have killed at least three people so far in 2023. Data by the group Mapping Police Violence shows 2022 was the deadliest year on record for police violence as law enforcement killed at least 1,176 people across the United States. 
And here in New York, over 7,000 nurses at Mount Sinai Hospital and Montefiore Medical Center are striking for a second straight day, demanding higher wages, stable benefits, and more staffing support to cope with the growing number of patients. This is New York State Nurses Association President Nancy Haggins speaking from the picket line Monday. Nurses don't want to strike. We would rather be inside, yep. taking care of our patients, right. but safely in a safe manner, not the condition they have us working for the past five, ten years. Enough is enough, Sinai. Enough is enough. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago, Illinois. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, we're going to be in today in Mexico. President Biden's meeting with the presidents of Mexico and Canada today for the North American Leaders Summit in Mexico City. Key issues on the table include migration, the economy, trade and security. On Monday, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador welcomed Biden to the National Palace in Mexico City. AMLO called on Biden to invest more in Latin America and to end what he describes as decades of, quote, disdain by the U.S. towards the region. Therefore, I hold that uh, this is the moment for us to determine to do away with this abandonment, this disdain and this forgetfulness for Latin America and the Caribbean which is opposed to the policy of the good neighborhood, of the titan, of freedom, and liberty, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And starting with you, because there would be no other leader that could implement this enterprise, beginning with you, to start a new stage with you, Mr. President, of the nations and the peoples of the continent as of respect and mutual aid and help and assistance. President Biden, you hold the key in your hand to open and to substantially improve the relationship among all the countries of the American continent. During his meeting with the Mexican president, President Biden vowed to discuss ways to strengthen U.S. relations with Mexico. So today, uh, we're going to discuss how we can further deepen that relationship, not only in Mexico, but in the Western Hemisphere. This includes strengthening our supply chains to make the hemisphere even more competitive. We're also going to discuss our shared security, including our joint action to address the, the plague of fentanyl, which is killed 100,000 Americans so far, and how we can tackle irregular migration, which I think we're well on our way to doing. Above all, we both committed to pursuing a better future, one grounded on peace and prosperity for all of our people. The North American Leaders Summit comes just days after Biden announced the United States will start to block migrants from Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba from applying for asylum if they're apprehended crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. The move is an expansion of the contested Trump-era 
Title 42 pandemic policy. The summit's also taking place less than a week after Mexico carried out a major military operation to arrest Vidio Guzman, the son of the imprisoned Mexican drug lord El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman. The operation involved over 3,500 troops, led to the deaths of 29 people, including 10 Mexican soldiers and 19 suspected drug cartel members. To talk about U.S.-Mexico relations and the North American Leaders Summit, we're joined by two guests in Mexico City. Elias Camarri is a Mexican journalist and reporter with the Spanish newspaper El País. He won Mexico's National Journalism Award in 2021. And Erika Guevara Rosas is a human rights lawyer and America's director for Amnesty International. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Erika, let's begin with you. Can you talk about the significance of this summit and particularly the Amnesty Report? that you just put out. President Biden came from the border, uh, El Paso, um, first visit he has made as president uh, to the border um, and made his way to Mexico City. Talk about what has happened along the border and what Amnesty National feels needs to happen. Amy, this summit is extremely important, particularly given the current state uh, in, in, in the Americas when the continent is experiencing some of the most complex refugee and migrant crisis uh, in comparison even with other regions of the world that are experiencing conflict. The Americas, unfortunately, is, uh, is the home of many countries that are experiencing human rights violations and of many people that are seeking asylum precisely of the conditions of the countries of origin. Unfortunately, these three governments, the North American governments, have implemented shared immigration policies aiming at deterring migration that are violating the rights of people, particularly of those who are seeking asylum. President Biden has visited for the first time the border uh, a couple of days after he implemented or he expanded some of the policies that have been criticized for many human rights organizations, some of these policies that were implemented by the Trump administration, including uh, what it's called uh, a stay in Mexico policy, that is this migrant protection protocol that is a shared policy with the Mexican government that is preventing people from seeking asylum, that is exposing people, that is uh, forcing Mexico to militarize its borders, to violate the human rights of the people who are trying to cross uh, the Mexico-U.S. border by uh, uh, like uh, forcing them to stay in very dangerous communities at the border uh, on the Mexico side, putting them at risk and at the hands of the organized crime that unfortunately continues to abuse the human rights of those people who are seeking asylum. And Erika Guevara, I wanted to ask you, uh, President uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, when he came into office, uh, promised a, a, a different treatment for migrants crossing through Mexico, yet Mexico has continued to militarize and, and, to, uh, and to not be as hospitable as, he would as his rhetoric would suggest. Could you talk about how the situation in Mexico uh, in terms of migrants has developed since AMLO came to office? Well, President Andrés López Obrador had been continuing with this narrative about humane policies towards migrants and refugees. Unfortunately, in practice, we are seeing totally a, a distant from that narrative, from that discourse. 
the militarization of the borders, the continuation of these shared policies that are violating the rights of people, the treatment that many of these people are receiving at the border, including the border between Mexico and Guatemala. Amnesty International has been documented massive deportation of people in need of international protection, including Haitians, um, Central Americans, Venezuelans, Cubans. Uh, people have been detained in immigration detention uh, facilities that don't have the conditions, including during the pandemic of COVID-19. Uh, people that are not accessing uh, the right to seek asylum in Mexico because information is not available or simply because the state the institution that is uh, um, created to provide uh, international protection doesn't have the capacity because doesn't have the funding to be able to respond to the demand from people that are seeking asylum. So unfortunately, we are seeing a continuation of policies of former uh, governments, but also a continuation of policies that are violating the rights of people. And I'd like to bring Elias Kamahi into the conversation as well. Uh, could you talk, you've been covering this summit uh, as, as it's developing. Uh, uh, talk to us about what you think are the main issues uh, that are that will be discussed by the three presidents. Well, the main topics of the summit are the migrant crisis, of course, the war on drugs and economic integration. And uh, we, we it's been a, a very highly anticipated summit, but we are still waiting for concrete agreements on these issues, like um, this announcement of taking 30,000 people to the U.S. from Haiti, from Nicaragua, from Cuba, from Venezuela, this has a direct impact on the other side of the border. And we need to come out with uh, concrete, concrete actions um, on, on, on the field to, to avoid this humanitarian crisis to, to be bigger, right? So um, this this day, this this Tuesday, uh, seems to be a crucial day for the summit in order to have a more concrete uh, panorama of what what can be expected in our shared border, which is uh, two thousand miles long. No, it, this is a geographical marriage, but sometimes the priorities and the impacts are very different on each side of the border. So. For, for us as Mexicans, we're expecting to see um, what's going to be the impact of, of receiving all the people who are not accepted to enter the U.S. and, um, and to see uh, what are we going to do, because they are, they are going to be in, in staying in some of the most dangerous play, uh, parts of the country, right? So we need to have more concrete outcomes and outputs of, of this summit, uh, especially in the upcoming hours. Elias, you're a journalist, an award-winning journalist in Mexico. Um, Mexico is one of the deadliest places to practice journalism in the world. Can you talk about why you think that is, what these leaders can do? And also, uh, included in that, of course, the context of the so-called war on drugs and how it's fueled drug lords in Mexico. Of course, um, the, the the situation here in Mexico is very uh, problematic for journalism. Um, President Biden um, should should have um, should have a, a more intense role uh, uh, than denouncing the situation the journalists 
are living here in Mexico. Uh, and in these summits, the, the, on the state level, the, the national level, the, the, the priorities are very important, right? Uh, and, and these factors also come in, into place. But also there, there's a, an individual component, right? Um, there, there need to be a chemistry uh, with, between López Obrador and President Biden to translate these actions, to translate these agreements um, to, to concrete actions on the field, right? Um, we, we see how the, the White House's policies have a direct impact, for example, uh, on the other side of the border, but uh, other national authorities uh, at the at the city level or that's at the state level have to be taken into account as well because there ne- there's need to be a, a, a conjunction of of interests and and conditions for these people to have a more humane stay in Mexico. So uh, what we saw, for example, last week regarding security. Uh, with the capture of El Chapo's son, was complete mayhem. We saw blockades, we saw gunshots, 29 people died, as you said, uh, uh, and uh, it, 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 there's need, there, there needs to be uh, a discourse that justifies why these uh, actions were, were, were taken and, and how this is going to benefit the communities uh, living in the in the in the areas of the country that are mostly controlled by the drug cartels, right? So, in 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 the U.S., the for example, the opioid crisis is mainly a public health issue, right? But here on the other side of the border, where the consumption of fentanyl, for example, is very low, we need to have um, also a, a justification to be uh, carrying the the heaviest burden. Uh, in in this war against drugs, no. So that that that's what I could tell you right now. Yeah, I'd like to go back to Erika Guevara Rosas. Uh, what what do you say to those people in the United States who who would say that the more that the United States uh, opens its doors to asylum seekers and uh, uh, refugees and those crossing the border, the more people will come. Uh, from uh, Latin America, given uh, the enormous disparities uh, in uh, in uh, economic uh, standard of living, as well as the uh, political problems uh, in Latin America. What would you say to those folks? Well, Juan, uh, we have migration levels that are breaking record currently, not only in the U.S.-Mexico border, but across the continent. All these immigration policies aimed at deterring migration are not working. We are seeing it. People are simply taking more dangerous routes. They are putting themselves at risk precisely because these migration policies are preventing them from accessing to the right to seek asylum in a secure way. Unfortunately, all these policies are violating the rights of people, not only because they are not able to access the right to seek asylum, but some of these people have been uh, returned to their countries of origin when they are also experiencing massive human rights violations. And this is against the international law, the international human rights law. Uh, that the United States and many other governments, of course, are, are obliged to follow. 
It is important for people in the United States to understand the implications of U.S. policy in many of these countries that in certain way exacerbating the conditions that are forcing these people to leave their communities, to leave their countries, to cross the borders and to seek safety for themselves and for their families. Humane policies, policies that put in the center the human rights of these people are going to benefit not only people accessing the right to seek asylum, but also the communities of reception. We have seen it all over the world. We are seeing it in the in the continent. I have just been in Colombia where I have seen that accepting, welcoming Venezuelan refugees, for instance, legalizing their condition, providing them with the conditions to exercise rights, including education, health, work, is improving not only their lives, but also improving the conditions of living all the communities of reception. So it is important for people to understand that respecting the rights of people are also benefiting the communities that are welcoming these people, but also and more important to understand that these migration policies are violating the human rights of people and are violating the obligations of the United States toward its commitments on, on human rights. Edica, I wanted to ask you about the context in which this meeting of the three leaders is taking place further south, of course, Brazil. There, January 8th, perhaps worse than what happened in the United States, January 6th, the insurrection in Brasilia uh, that attacked three houses of government, the presidential palace, the Congress, the Supreme Court. Uh, President Biden spoke with uh, President Lula of Brazil on Monday after the violence, he invited him to the United States, uh, uh, which uh, for early next month. Um, can you talk about what you want to see uh, both Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, President Biden and AMLO, the Mexican president, um, say about authoritarianism and this far right domestic violence from Brazil to the United States? What do you want them to say? I mean, what happened in Brazil is very symptomatic of the state of the world and the state of our region. The increasing radicalization of anti-right, anti-democratic groups, movements that have been encouraged by political leaders to, you know, have these violent expressions. So all the images that came from Brasilia uh, were very, very shocking and concerning because these are images that uh, remind us of the of the assault on the capital in the U.S. They are reminding us of many other incidents that are happening in many other countries across the continent. It is important that North American leaders commit themselves to democratic values, to commit themselves to put human rights at the center of their policies that really welcome. Uh, you know, the, the, the decision of people through the election process and to really support democratic values in those countries where, unfortunately, are struggling uh, because people don't have options. And, and Elias, come out here. In a couple of minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you about the third topic of the summit, the one that hasn't gotten very much attention, which is uh, trade policy and economic integration. Uh, President Lopez Obrador has really made it a, a point of his administration to reestablish uh, national sovereignty by Mexico over its oil industry. This has the um, American business upset. Uh, and also the the second version of, of NAFTA, which was approved under President Trump, had all kinds of uh, new regulations about 
uh, production of uh, automobiles, a portion of which had to be in the United States. That's also been uh, a, a bone of contention since then. Could you talk about these two issues and what you expect might come out of this summit? Sure, Juan. Um, uh, President López Obrador has faced a lot of criticism because of his energy policies. Um, and he defends these policies by saying they, uh, they are necessary to have economic growth, economic development. So what they are trying to do is to combine um, the transition to clean energies uh, with economic integration. Uh, there's, there's a plan between Arizona and Sonora on the other side of the border to increase the, the supply chain of semiconductors, for example. So the, the minerals key to this exploitation are, are, will be extracted from Mexico and taken to Arizona to, to have uh, more jobs, to have uh, uh, um, substantial benefits, uh, concrete benefits, in, on the economic side, and uh, here in Mexico, it is expected that uh, President uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, sorry, um, will will pressure will pressure on that because um, climate change and climate worries uh, are a priority for uh, U.S. and Canada, but not as much for Mexican government. So they are trying to combine these two factors under NAFTA, under under this umbrella of NAFTA. To, to have a, 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 a positive output no? and, and, to, and to have a more concrete um, benefits for, for, the, for the vast majority of the population. That's how uh, President López Obrador has justified his unwillingness to, to bet on, on clean energy, for example. Well, Elias Camachi, we want to thank you for being with us, Mexican journalist for El País, and Erika Guevara Rosas, America's director for Amnesty International, both speaking to us from Mexico City. Next up, a hundred years ago this weekend, the Rosewood Massacre in Florida took place. An armed white mob attacked the predominantly black town in central Florida. We'll talk with the grandchild of a survivor. And then afterwards, Ben Jealous has a new memoir, and we'll speak with him. Stay with us. La liberación del pueblo. Che 
La Vuelta, The Turn by Quetzal. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn to look at the Rosewood Massacre. A hundred years ago this weekend, a white mob attacked and burned down the black town of Rosewood in central Florida. The racist mob murdered at least six black residents, forced the rest of the town to flee. Many eyewitnesses said the true death toll was far higher. The violence began after a white woman falsely accused a black man of assault nearby. By the time the massacre ended, every building in Rosewood except one had burned down. No law enforcement agency investigated the massacre. No one was ever charged with crimes. In 1994, the Florida legislature approved $2 million in compensation for nine survivors and dozens of descendants of the attack. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, they were the only government reparations ever paid to victims of this anti-black racial violence in the U.S. In a moment, we'll be joined by a professor whose grandfather survived the Rosewood massacre. But first, this is an excerpt from the trailer to the late director John Singleton's acclaimed 1997 film Rosewood, which helped bring greater attention to the massacre. In 1923, the black town of Rosewood was a land of opportunity. You've been drifting long, Mr. Man. Seemed like forever. Colored folks own all the land around here, all the businesses, too. Man can make a new start around here, make something of himself. Until the day, one woman's false accusation. Tell me the truth. Was it truly a color done this to you? Unleashed a fury against their town. If you find him, well, you know what to do. There'd be some trouble around here, sir. To show you your help. There ain't no way in the world one man got enough bullets for all them crackers. And a search for the guilty became a hunt for the innocent. These are real folks dying. Women and children ain't done nothing wrong to no soul. The colored folk just can't be running all the time. There comes a time when you got to stand up and defend your rights. The trailer to the late, great director John Singleton's 1997 film, Rosewood. We go now to Gainesville, Florida, about 45 miles from Rosewood, where we're joined by Jonathan Barry Blocker. He's visiting professor at University of Florida Law School, former staff attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. His grandfather, the late Reverend Ernest Blocker, survived the 1923 Rosewood Massacre. It's great to have you with us, Professor Barry Blocker. Welcome to Democracy Now! Tell us about how you learned about the massacre and what happened with your grandfather. Sure. Um, I learned about the massacre when I was 13, but in a very distant, disconnected way. Uh, My dad sat me down and said, hey, there's a movie coming out and people may ask some questions of you about it. Uh, Your grandfather was involved, uh, but he's not going to answer questions, so don't ask him. And that was pretty much it, the end of the conversation. And so... uh, I didn't initiate any communications. My dad has indicated uh, that at some point he forced my grandfather to try to talk to us about it, but I'm told that lasted all of five minutes and was very sparse on details, so didn't register. Um, But it wasn't until college when I actually watched the movie, uh, Rosewood, because my folks didn't have me and my siblings watch it while we were growing up, uh, that I came to appreciate exactly what happened, or at least the gist of what happened. 
And so I don't know my grandfather's role. I don't know where he was uh, during all the violence and the mayhem. I just know that he and his family left after it um, and never talked about it again, at least not amongst each And what was your reaction, uh, Jonathan Barry Blocker, when you saw this film in college, not having known the story your entire growing up? Oh, I was irate. I was I was I was very upset uh, to see it depicted the terror, the fleeing, the confusion, uh, the displacement. Uh, I did not leave campus for the entire weekend. And from what you know, uh, how were the facts uh, documented and uncovered that led to uh, Florida lawmakers approving uh, a first time compensation or, or reparations to survivors here? As I understand things, uh, a journalist, Gary Moore, broke the story in the 80s. And then uh, one of the descendants, Arnett Doctor, pushed and advocated for compensation and reparations uh, and mobilized a lot of folks uh, to support him in that effort. And uh, that's what led to the study and then eventually to the compensation package, or is what we might call it reparations, uh, for some of the descendants and survivors. Let me turn to a clip. This is historian Robin D.G. Kelly of UCLA. Um, in, nine, in 2020, he appeared on Democracy Now! to talk about the history of race massacres in the United States. If you look at the history of race riots in, in America, most so-called race riots were basic pogroms, going back to Cincinnati in 1839, 1841, going back to a whole range of of so-called race riots in Philadelphia. You mentioned Tulsa uh, in the opening of the show, Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was a kind of looting, not a kind of looting, but you're talking about uh, destroying 35 35 blocks of of, uh, black-owned property and businesses um, worth millions of dollars. Um, people going into people's white people going into homes with the support of the police, taking black people's stuff, destroying and taking stuff. Um, Tulsa, Oklahoma, East St. Louis in 1917. We could talk about Rosewood in 1923. Uh, you know, there's so many examples. Springfield, Illinois, 1908. Um, and some of that looting is also about taking political power. Professor Barry Blocker, if you can comment on what Robin D.G. Kelly had to say, and also, as someone who's worked on poverty um, and race relations and violation of human and voting rights in this country at Southern Poverty Law Center, um, what about this discussion of reparations? I mean, two million that the legislature approved, of course, is a pittance when you're talking about the loss of human life and the rest of the effect, the terror effect uh, on the black population of Florida. All right, we well, got two questions there, so I'll try to uh, remember each. Remind me if I forget uh, any part of one. But in regards to your first question, what the professor was saying, I want to be upfront. Um, Mass violence, racial violence is not my research area, but I do incorporate into my lessons. Uh, And it was widespread. And as was heard on the clip, um, it could be deployed for to gain political power and retribution for perceived slights to white womanhood uh, or for too much economic prosperity or economic competition. And so it happened to blacks. It happened to indigenous communities. 
um, happened to Filipino and other Asian American communities on the West Coast, as well as Hispanic communities uh, during the 18th and 20th century or 19th and 20th centuries. Um, so it's it's prevalent in the histories of Amer the annals of American history. And I would encourage everyone to read up and, and discover more of what was going on in not just their their bloodlines, but even in their communities, their home states or their homelands. Uh, if you've traveled across the nation or moved uh, with regards to your second question, uh, having worked in poverty work and civil rights work with SPLC and Legal Services Alabama uh, and the, the call for reparations. I think the government has failed to protect sometimes communities here and its citizens or has aided in harms to certain communities and citizens. And so there, there does need to be talk about how to repair those harms, especially if they're longstanding and long-lasting. Um, our legal system, someone brought up in question to me once whether or not reparations was proper or valid. And I had to remind them that our legal system in America is built on the concept that you should receive some type of money uh, or uh, repair, financial repair, for harm suffered to your property, to your person, to your marriage, to your emotions, to uh, your family, to your prospects. The law does a great deal, the tort law here, to repair harm. So I think reparations can be part of that consideration. And Professor, uh, to what extent has, uh, to your knowledge, has uh, the black community of Rosewood uh, rebounded? And what's the status of the community now? Because obviously a lot of people were driven out back in 1923. Uh, what's your sense of uh, the situation today? Well, if you talk to some of the scholars uh, who have made Rosewood their, their primary focus, you'll learn that there was a mass exodus of black residents both in Rosewood and in some of the surrounding towns like Cedar Key. Uh, Cedar Key, which is nine miles away, had a population of roughly 37 percent blacks uh, prior to the violence, and afterwards they all but disappeared. So um, when you go there now, I'd, I, the times I've visited, I have not encountered too many black locals, either in Cedar Key uh, and I've only been to Rosewood twice. Uh, it's pretty rural now. So uh, there, there isn't a large or robust black presence, and most people have moved on and did move on to other communities where they felt a bit safer and stable. Jonathan Barry Blocker, we thank you so much for being with us, visiting professor at University of Florida Law School. His grandfather, the late Reverend Ernest Blocker, is a survivor of the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, 100 years ago this month. Next up, we speak with the former head of the NAACP, Ben Jealous. He has a memoir out, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free. A parable of American healing. Stay with us.
Look Down, Lord, by John Williams from the soundtrack of the acclaimed film Rosewood. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. As we turn from the 100th anniversary of the Rosewood massacre in Florida to Ben Jealous, former head of the NAACP for years, then head of People for the American Way, and now soon to be the head of the Sierra Club. He's now professor of practice at the University of Pennsylvania and has just written a new memoir. It's out today. Never forget our people were always free, a parable of American healing. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Ben. It's great to have you with us. Congratulations of the publication mm -hmm. of your memoir. Um, as we talk about history today, I want to go back to your grandmother and her grandfather, who was born into slavery. Both you are the descendant of enslaved people and Confederate generals. Yes, you're my grandmother's grandfather uh, grew up slave in Virginia, knowing that his owner was his uncle, knowing that Robert E. Lee was his cousin. And he, on the other side of slavery, built a populist movement in the gap between the end of Reconstruction and the start of Jim Crow with a former Confederate general. And together, they saved the free public schools of the state. That was their cause. They also built Virginia Tech, expanded it radically, rather, and they created the first public black college south of the Mississippi. It's just a bold testament to what can happen when we come together. They also abolished the poll tax and the public, and the public whipping post. So there you have it, Amy. I mean, we were never taught that there was ever a time when former Confederates and former slaves came together, let alone with a pro-civil rights, pro-public education, pro-workers' rights platform. And Ben, uh, could you talk about your mother as well? She uh, co-authored the book, uh, Combined Destinies, White Sharing Grief about racism, and uh, went in depth in that book into uh, uh, more than 50 white people whose lives were deeply affected by racism in America. Yeah, there's the book about how racism against blacks hurts white people. I grew up on a bridge between black and white and north and south and even the old world of the East Coast and the cutting edge of California. My parents built that bridge for their kids, trying to show us that we could be one country. That's what really motivated me in my book. But her book was really motivated in part by being married to a man who loved his grandfather and yet was disowned by his grandfather. His brothers stood by him, his mom stood by him, but his grandfather disowned him, disinherited him, sent my father into poverty. And, um, you know, that watching uh, a white man uh, be attacked by his own grandfather for because he loved a woman of a different hue really made her realize what Dr. King said was real, that we're all inextricably linked. There is no there is no hurting one member of the human family and not hurting yourself. Ben, as Juan raised uh, your mother and I asked about your grandmother, we want to put the three of you together. In 2009, when you were head of the NAACP, um, you went to a StoryCorps booth and you talked with your mother and Todd Jealous and your grandmother, Mamie Todd, about how they responded to some of the racism they experienced in their lifetimes. This aired on NPR's Morning Edition and starts with your— grandmother 
describing how she taught at an all-black school in Virginia where students lacked pencils and paper or books or a working chalkboard. This is what happened when she went to demand changes from the white superintendent of schools. I went up to the secretary's desk and said, I have an appointment. And she says, well, the colored teachers come around the back. I said, beg your pardon? She said, colored teachers come around the back. I said, well, there's his desk right there. And so I walked on through it and went to his desk. (laughs) He was sitting there. He didn't stand up. And there was a chair in front of his desk. So I sat there. And he and I had a conversation. And I just told him how I felt. I really felt about it. And he was a human being. I knew we had that much in common. And I wasn't afraid of him. And Were I you ever afraid of anybody? Well, I don't know. I, I have to think about it. I, I have to think about it. Anyway, uh, the next day, by 1030 in the morning, a pickup truck came to school laden with materials. I mean, blackboards hanging over the sides. And I had everything I could think of that I had told him that school needed. Hmm. Well, we're talking about protests. Mom, tell me about desegregating your high school. When I first went there, I remember being assigned a seat, and there was this other girl sitting in my seat. So I went up to say to her, you know, you're in my seat, and she fell onto the floor. She was so terrified. And then I remember... <laughs> you're really not very scary, I was Mom. Not, probably more scary now. now late. Um, the rumor was that we all carried knives, and she was afraid that I would uh, stick a knife in her for sitting in my seat. And actually, I was asking her to move because I was afraid of the teacher, you know, being upset. Mimi, what was it like for you to watch her go through this? It was very difficult, but she kept a lot of it to herself. Hmm. I did not want to burden them. I was an only child, and my parents talked a lot. And I grew up with their stories. And so I was very, very conscious of a great deal that they carried as a consequence of racism. So I kept as much as I could to myself. Wow. Thanks, Mom. You're welcome, Ben. Thanks for being interested and asking. Thanks, Mimi. Good luck to you, darling. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot left to be done. So there you have Ben Jealous speaking with his mother and Todd Jealous and his grandmother, Mamie Todd. Ben, as you come out with your memoir, you are the son of a white father and a black mother who left Baltimore after they married. Interracial marriage then was illegal. Um, You write about being a cousin to both Thomas Jefferson and Robert E. Lee, and you found out you're distantly related to Dick Cheney. Talk (laughs) about the writing of this memoir, um, what you discovered, and why you feel it's important as a really a memoir uh, narrative of this entire country. Virginia really is the cradle of our country. And I didn't know most of this. You know, like your guest said about Rosewood, like our elders really don't speak about the painful parts. Well, my grandmother, you heard her, when she went into that superintendent's office, part of the reason she insisted in going through the front door was her father's name was over the front door, her her grandfather's name, rather, because he had saved the free public schools in that county and in that state, not just as a leader of formerly enslaved men, but as a leader of former Confederate soldiers as well. But I wasn't taught this history. And the moment that I realized that, you know, like Robert E. Lee and Dick Cheney are both my cousins, like the country felt very small. I just got my first copy on the way over here. And in a way that just like made my mind explode. But the moment I figured out that my 
grandmother's beloved grandfather, his political partner, was a former Confederate general and a man who, who qualified as a war criminal, too. He had massacred an entire black regiment that surrendered. And yet here they were 15 years after the war, five years into the reign of terror of the Ku Klux Klan. And while that old war criminal looks like a pretty good ally, like let the Klan deal with him. We don't have to deal with him anymore. And they banded together. They took over the entire Virginia state government, the governor, both senators, both houses. They asserted this agenda. They would ultimately be put down by violent white supremacists and disinformation campaigns. But what's remarkable, Amy, is they planted the, seal, the seeds for FDR's coalition in that state. It was their old lieutenants who would be his, you know, their young lieutenants who would be his old lieutenants in the state. And they demonstrated yet again that there's a magnetism between the working people of this country across all the lines they use to divide us, wanting to come together. Why? Because our kids need us to. So every time now I see Virginia Tech or I see Virginia State or I see a public school in Virginia, I'm reminded these exist the way that we know them because former Confederate soldiers and formerly enslaved men came together, built a third party, took over their state and asserted their, their rights and those of their children. And Ben, in terms of the the lessons for today, especially in the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection and the continued rise and consolidation of a right wing uh, neo-fascist movement uh, in this country. What do you uh, uh, talk to us about what you what lessons you draw uh, that uh, today's generation of activists uh, uh, could learn from? We have more in common than we don't. And we and that's always been the case and it always will be the case. One of the mysteries that my grandmother gave me, uh, she would say, never forget, before there were slave rebellions, there were colonial rebellions. Charles V. Hamilton, the co-author of Black Power, was my professor in college. He said the exact same thing, but he went further. He said, politics is a lot like physics. Something in motion will return to its original state. He said, as Americans, we misremember our original state because we only focus on movies and TV shows that show us slavery near the end. In the beginning, said, there weren't just slave rebellions. They were colonial rebellions. There were white or European indentured servants and African slaves rising up together. And he said, if you really go back and you look at it, you'll understand that's where we're headed, that we're going to come together. He believed that. I believe that. You see evidence of it all around it's the politicians it's the 24-hour news often that profit by keeping us divided but in our hearts the people of this country want to come together they know that our kids will do better if we do well ben um we're going to do part two of this conversation and post online at democracynow.org i think i met you years ago on the grounds of the prison in Jackson, Georgia, um, uh, where Troy Anthony Davis was executed and you were protesting outside. We're going to talk about mass incarceration, the death penalty, and so many other issues with Ben Jealous, former president of the NAACP, then People for the American Way, now coming up. We'll head the Sierra Club. He is the grandson of Mamie Todd, who died last year at the age of 100. And five. She was an outspoken civil rights activist who worked as a social worker led to Maryland's Child Protective Service Agency. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The new book, Never Forget Our People Were Always Free.